0: Welcome to the Longevity Week podcast, hosted by the Longevity Forum. We'll be featuring podcasts all week on the theme, The Age of Resilience, which you can catch online, the longevityforum.com Today, Marisa Drew, Chief Sustainability Officer and Global Head Sustainability Strategy, Advisory and Finance at Credit Suisse, will be interviewing Jillian Tett editor-at-large of the U.S. Financial Times on the impact of COVID-19 on the ESG agenda and future resilience. Now to you, Marisa.
1: Thank you very much, Laura. and delighted to be here, and it certainly is a mouthful when you try to uh, say the name of my group we affectionately call SSAF. <laughs> Anyway, I'm very, very happy to be interviewing someone who I admire and who I believe with her platform is really moving the needle on the ESG and sustainability agenda. So it's a real privilege, Jillian, to welcome you to our conversation. And I I thought I would start by maybe drawing a link a little bit since it's a longevity focused event about the whole concept of short-term versus long-term investment, because I think there's a sort of theory of change here that we are going to tackle some of the big systemic issues in the world. The whole structure of how the capital markets are organized, pushing people for short-term results, quarterly reporting, and all of that is somewhat inconsistent with the idea of investing for something that is likely to take longer to materialize and to, to create value and to also create that impact. So, Jillian, maybe you can comment on that to, just to kick us off.
2: Well, thank you very much indeed, Marissa. And it's great to have a chance to chat to you because you have been playing such a pioneering role in this whole sector in recent years. Now, when people talk about the way that the corporate zeitgeist is going today, they use lots of labels and acronyms. They talk about sustainability, ESG, CSR. You know, long term capitalism. I think a better way to talk about it is to say that what's happening is we're going back towards the original version of Adam Smith. Now, the Adam Smith concept, the Scottish Enlightenment thinker, has been used to very much act as the founding father of modern capital markets and the way we think the economies work with capitalist free market competition. But Adam Smith always wrote two books. He wrote one book about the need for market competition and how beneficial that could be. Uh, but he also wrote a book about the theory of moral sentiments and the idea that you needed to have a moral and ethical and legal framework. And you needed to have a system where essentially enterprises, companies in his day, family owned firms, were building niches, products, businesses for the long term good of wider society. And people had skill in the game. And to have long term growth, to have effective, sustainable growth, you need to have people with a sense of skin in the game, a longer-term perspective, and above all else, a sense of being embedded in wider society rather than just operating with short-term tunnel vision.
1: Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, I think that's extremely well said and provides a foundation for my next question, which is we have this burgeoning field of sustainable finance, the mobilization of capital directed to trying to tackle some of these issues is growing uh, by leaps and bounds, But there in the moment of the pandemic and the crisis, there was a big cry that perhaps all of this was going to be put on the back burner and take a lesser priority to, I would say, immediate pandemic response. And some of these big systemic issues would just have to wait when, you know, we are reaching tipping points, uh, particularly the climate side. Just curious, you know, from what you see and what you're reporting on, uh, did that really materialize or was that just maybe uh, somebody crying wolf too early?
2: Well, I think that's a great question, Marissa, because the reason I've been tracking this so closely is about a year and a half ago, I created with my colleagues the FT a platform called Moral Money, which is trying to really look at this new zeitgeist. And we called it Moral Money, partly because it's a catchy name without any acronyms, but also we were trying to invoke the theory of moral sentiments. And when we launched it, I was delighted to see that the uptake was pretty quick. But when the COVID happened in March this year, or rather when it hit Europe and the US, I actually said to my colleagues, gosh, maybe we've launched it at the wrong time because maybe companies and investors won't have any bandwidth to think about ESG issues and environmental social governance issues during a pandemic. They won't have enough money or time to even focus on it. Frankly, I couldn't be more wrong because what we've seen um, at the Financial Times in terms of reader interest is that interest has actually become much stronger not weaker during the pandemic which is really quite striking
1: and it's interesting because we're seeing the same thing you know in the uh, platforms and ecosystem that we operate in which is people looking to deploy capital we see this enormous enthusiasm so what do you think it is that we've learned from the global pause or the moment of reflection what is it that's gotten people sort of almost renewed energy toward the space or for those who maybe were on the fringes or edges? has gotten them to jump in with gusto?
2: Well, I think there are really four things going on. Firstly, most obviously, the pandemic has shown people that it's a big mistake to ignore science. And that applies as much to climate change as it does with a pandemic. Secondly, it's reminded everyone that we do live in an interconnected planet where we're all linked together in a global chain of humanity. And if the weakest link breaks, it can have very nasty repercussions for everyone else. And we saw that with a pandemic, if a poor person gets sick on the other part of the world, you can't just ignore that because it may come back to bite you. And I think that's forced a wider reconsideration on the part of what might be called the Western elites about their ability to ignore unpleasant developments. Thirdly, we've seen that behaviour can change. It's not set in stone. I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, and I know there's a numerous range of ways that human beings can choose to arrange their lives, and it changes over time. People often forgot that, but just think about how rapidly a place like New York has adopted masks, which was unimaginable six months ago. I think people are wondering, well, if they can do that with masks, maybe we shouldn't discount any more significant behavioral changes in relation to things like climate change. But the other issue, which I think is incredibly important, is that if you dial back a decade or two and think about the mood that was at places like Davos, I used to joke that it was marked by a belief in what I call the holy trinity of Davos man, a belief in free markets, globalization, innovation, only ever going in one direction. What we've seen in the last two or three years is that history can go into reverse. All of those trends have begun to be challenged. And that's forcing a lot of the elite, is forcing company directors and investors to step back and having to rethink their assumptions and above all else, recognize that just having tunnel vision just looking at the world through narrow economic models, financial models, without taking a wider vision of society and the world is potentially very dangerous because it's a recipe for being surprised by nasty events that were not actually baked into the models. And so one way to talk about this rise of ESG is that investors and companies are moving from tunnel vision to lateral vision.
1: I love that. I also often say that when you think about incorporating the ES and the G into your investment strategies, it offers an opportunity to perhaps see risks that you wouldn't otherwise see. So there's a risk mitigation angle to it, but there's also an ability to identify burgeoning opportunities. And I'm just curious because you touched on the topic of the inequities, And historically and conventionally, the idea of investing in bridging inequities or gaps or perhaps investing at those at the base of the pyramid and lower economic strata, et cetera, wasn't really a place to make money or wasn't a sustainable investment place to to deploy capital. Just curious as to your view now, given what you said, whether you're thinking that there is a rethink on on these systems and, and those sort of basic philosophies.
2: Well, I think the key thing that anyone who's looking at this sector needs to understand is that ESG has moved from being a tool of activism, which it was, frankly, a decade ago. And it was dominated by people who were interested in impact investing and making conscious decisions to campaign to change the world, whether they were Danish pension funds or those nuns who turn up at AGMs or anyone else. That was how it was before, a tool of activism. Today, it's a tool of risk management. As you say, because so much of what is at the heart of ESG is about companies saying that we need to basically try and control risks. and the risks, if you like, are not just the risks to the planet, but risks to themselves. And the reason is this: if you have a world where society and your own employers and your own suppliers and customers, and sometimes governments too, are demanding a broader focus on ESG standards. It's a risk to ignore that. If you ignore gender issues, you may end up with hashtag me too and all the reputational damage. If you ignore environmental issues, you may end up with you know, not just regulatory fines but also investors fleeing your company, your own employees complaining, etc., etc. And if you ignore social issues, which frankly companies have often only paid lip service towards in the past, what company executives are beginning to realise is that they could end up with repercussions as well. You can be cynical and say this is basically the pitchfork factor. People are running scared of the prospect of pitchforks at their gates. You can be more optimistic and say that actually an entire generation have realized that they need to have a social conscience. But either way, it's a very striking shift. And when I point out to my colleagues in the media world that actually ESG is now a tool of risk management as much as activism, A lot of them say, well, isn't that completely hypocritical? It takes away the whole point. And on one level, yes, it doesn't meet the ideals that the activists originally were upholding. But the critical thing to realise, as someone who's covered a number of actual political revolutions in my reporting career, is that revolutions happen not when a tiny group of activists basically seize a capital city or anything else. They usually happen when the majority, the silent majority, decides to either stand aside or just get on board because it's not worth their while opposing it. And I think that's a tipping point we're at now in all kinds of unexpected ways.
1: Yeah, and some of this is born out of necessity. You think about a tipping point, you know, for 20 years, people have been investing in the education field for, say, online or digital delivery of of education content. And yet after 20 years of investment, you know, our systemic or our systems of how we delivered and educated our people, you know, hadn't changed In decades, and then by necessity, the pandemic hits and we go from 2% digital (laughs) delivery to 97% globally. And now that is the thing that's shaking up the system to say, well, maybe we need to rethink how how we deliver content, how we connect with people. From an education point of view, maybe this is the moment that you can democratize education and make it a little fairer and bridge some of those gaps. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. By the way, the other thing that is interesting: some of our research teams did a bit of a study, which I found very provocative. In the 1970s, 80 plus percent of the value in the S and P was in tangible assets. And we fast forward to today, and eighty plus percent of the value of the S and P is in intangibles. And when it's not about physical assets, and it's about things like your reputation or your brand, that is so susceptible to potentially damage. Right? Um, particularly in a virally wired world, when you talked about the, the you being on the wrong end of the Me Too movement, um, you know, it, it does force. I think the companies, or at least the companies who are aware of that. As a risk factor, it's got to be managed, just like you would manage your physical assets. So it's it's sort of an interesting way to uh, to think about value.
2: Marissa, I think there's one other thing as well, which I'd also point out, which is this: Milton Friedman developed his ideas about shareholder capitalism and, frankly, shareholder only focused capitalism at a time when people believed that the government was credible and capable, and therefore companies could easily outsource most of these social problems to government. Mm. We don't live in that world anymore. I mean, nobody expects, frankly, the government to solve anything quickly and effectively. And in addition to that, we live in a world of increasingly radical transparency, where society's attitudes towards things like the environment and gender issues um, can increasingly be tracked online by customers, shareholders, employees. And in that world, it actually starts to seem quite rational from a shareholder perspective to worry about ESG. You don't have to be somehow, you know, playing down the role of shareholder rights to say that, that stakeholders matter. And I suspect that if Milton Friedman was drawing up his original essay in an era of radical transparency, where reputational damage is an ever-present threat, and an era where you don't expect the government to actually fix problems anymore that he might have had a slightly different tenor to his arguments.
1: It would be fun to invite him into the conversation in today's world for sure. Well, as ever, you know, we could carry on the conversation. It's just such a rich seam of things to talk about and to uh, to surface. But the nemesis is going to be our clock here. But as we maybe round out and you think about the topics that are coming to the fore now that you're writing about, what are the handful of post-COVID themes that you think are going to be the most important ones, whether it's from the lens of, of risk management and some of the innovations or tools or trends that you're seeing in the risk management side, or whether it's the opportunity side of the sustainable investing movement. You know, If you were to point to a handful of things, having learned what we've learned through COVID, what, what do you think will endure?
2: I think biodiversity is coming into the picture. It's never gone away, but it's coming back again more clearly. Partly because, frankly, things like zoonetics have shown, or zoonetic diseases have shown the cost of ignoring biodiversity issues. I think that supply chains are increasingly a focus and expectations are rising about companies needing to monitor their supply chains. I think that the question of accounting is going to be absolutely crucial. And there's a huge amount of work and initiative around those areas, which, frankly, is very encouraging and very exciting. There's currently a big transatlantic rift around that. It will be very interesting to watch to see whether that closes or not. I think one of the big questions is going to be whether the world can move from a very rigid binary definition of green versus brown towards what I call the olive curve, which is a world where companies and projects and even countries are being encouraged and incentivized to move from brown to a greener shade of brown or a greener shade of olive, if you like, in ways that actually will enhance the transition. I think the question about how to balance off social equity against um, environmental issues, the so called just transition is going to also be critical. So those are some of the issues I could go on a long way. But those are certainly (laughs) some of the things that we're looking at, from the perspective of moral money and the wider coverage inside the FT. And it's a very exciting time to be doing this.
1: Absolutely. Well, I was just sitting here smiling, thinking, I think your headlines are probably written for you now for the next decade (laughs) with all of that that you just surfaced. And there's going to be, I'm sure, as, as we go forward, sort of no end to the opportunity both to write about this, to capture hearts and minds, and hopefully from my point of view to galvanize capital. So, on that i think we have a shared and aligned mission so as of our a wonderful opportunity to chat jillian thank you so much for your time today and for uh, your great thoughts on all these important topics
0: thanks marissa and always great to talk this broadcast has been brought to you by the longevity forum as part of longevity week 2020 we are very grateful to our sponsors juvenescence hill dickinson and Burnbrae. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.